The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Carol McBride, author of uh, Will I Ever Be Free of You? How to Navigate a High-Conflict Divorce from a Narcissist and Heal Your Family. Dr. Carol McBride is a psychologist, a licensed marriage and family therapist in Denver, Colorado, with over or more than 30 years in public and private practice. And she's still, she's writing books and also is still in private practice treating patients. Uh, her book is considered a revolutionary guide to successfully managing a divorce from a narcissist and surviving its aftermath. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Can I call you Carol? Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Catherine. Great to have you. Well, we have lots to talk about today. Okay, surviving a divorce. First of all, um, I think we need to talk and perhaps just give a definition of narcissist because, you know, Carol, today everybody talks, I think, just in general terms, my girlfriend's a narcissist, my boyfriend's a narcissist, you know, all they do is think about themselves, and we kind of use that term loosely, but that's different, you know, from people who are just, it's all about me, but that's not exactly what a narcissist is in clinical terms, so I think maybe we should start with that, some kind of a definition of who are we talking about. Sure. I think that's great. Um, the, you know, if we look at the traits that are listed for a narcissistic personality disorder, um, I, think, I think really understanding narcissism, we have to look at it as a spectrum disorder um, because we all have some narcissistic traits on one end of the continuum. Um, and then if we if we kind of imagine it as a continuum, you know, where the more traits along this line people have, the more problems it, it causes in their relationships and their lives. And then on the far end is is what we call the narcissistic personality disorder. Um, and if we look at that, you know, the the narcissistic personality disorder, um, we're looking at the nine traits that are listed um, with someone who has a grandiose sense of self-importance, is preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success and power, um, believing that they're special and unique and they can only um, communicate with other people that they think are special or high status uh, or unique, uh, requiring excessive admiration, having a sense of entitlement, um, interpersonally exploitative, taking advantage of others to achieve their own ends, um, lacking empathy, uh, envious of others, believing that others are envious of them, and then showing arrogant, haughty behaviors or attitudes. Uh, those are the nine traits listed in the diagnostic manual for a full-blown personality disorder. Okay, those traits, those nine traits sound really nasty. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like I, I, you really wouldn't want to necessarily or try to have a relationship with somebody who exhibits those nine traits. But I guess, and also, could I add to that? They have to be somewhat consistent, persistent, prevalent. Uh, you know, over time, it's not just occasionally someone may exhibit one of those traits or two of those traits. Right. Yeah. That's right. However, like I said, I, I, what I write about is, um, has more to do with parental narcissism and, you know, parents who are narcissists. And I think the real cornerstone and, and key to understanding it from that perspective is the lack of empathy 
and the inability to tune into the emotional welfare of your spouse and your children. Parental narcissists. So are they considered to be on that, I don't know what you call it, the right or the left-hand side of that spectrum? I mean, do they fall into the category of a true narcissistic personality disorder, or is it a subset, or what is it? It's just another type of description? It can be, again, I always look at it as the continuum, you know, the, the spectrum disorder. So you can, they can be full-blown personality disorders or they can just be people with a lot of narcissistic traits, um, and that can still cause a lot of damage to their children. Lack of, okay, I think the thing that you just meant, one of the traits that you just mentioned is lack of empathy. So if you have a real lack of empathy um, and it's pretty persistent and over time and that's very difficult to have a good relationship, obviously, with another person, an adult relationship, partner, spouse, and child. So herein, I guess, lies the issue. And so... Your book is about having how to like really separate, I guess, from this this person. This person, I mean, it's going to obviously cause a high conflict divorce. Divorce is high conflict no matter what, usually. So you add this to the the, the uh, ingredients, and um, it's a horror story, I would imagine. I mean, this is so. Let's get into the. How do you? How do you deal with that? How do you deal with somebody? How do you navigate a high-conflict divorce from a narcissist? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the book. That's the book, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, oh, I, how, I, I, what I'd like to say first about that, Catherine, is yeah. that um, I really wrote this book because I think there needs to be some debunking of the myth that when you see a high-conflict divorce um, that goes on and on and on in the courts and, you know, costs lots of money and lots of hearings and lots of filings, the the court system today, the professionals today, um, tend to sort of still believe that if two parents are doing this, they must both just be crazy, you know just two nutty people who don't care about their kids. And this is one of the main reasons that I was interested in writing this book because what we're seeing is in many of these high-conflict divorces, we have one narcissistic partner who unilaterally can wreak havoc in the court system and, and in the divorce process. And then we have the other parent who is having to hang in there you know, and keep fighting just to protect the emotional welfare of the children. So they get hooked into the chaos. I, I, I mean, that's what I hear you saying. I mean, you have this one person who has these the narcissistic traits, and then they are, in a way, and this is layman's terms, but they sort of drive the other person crazy, and then they begin to act kind of crazy themselves. I mean, that's not... Uh, well, yeah. No, what I'm saying is that they can be reactive to the narcissist, so they can they can certainly look reactive. But what I'm saying is we are seeing a lot of cases now where that other parent who isn't a narcissist is having to stay in the battle because the children are being hurt. And my platform is all about kids. It's all about we've got to do better for kids. And so I... I see this this book and what I'm doing right now as um, a way to begin a conversation about, you know, getting professionals better trained about this issue, um, debunking this myth that both people are nuts, um, and working on some system changes, and also, you know, what what can we do better for children with these cases? So you have to be able to recognize this is what you're saying in one of one of the one half of the couple, whoever that happens to be, and right. yeah. So you have to be able to identify who is that person and what's happening, and if yes. you're going to protect the children. Yes, and yeah. because narcissists are so good at charming and conning and manipulating, um, they're sometimes in in the beginning difficult to detect because they're all about image and they're very good at their, you know, their persona that uh, they want to put on to the world. 
And so they can, uh, professionals can be seduced by them. Judges can be seduced by them. And oftentimes, once the professionals, the judges, the court hearings, once they do figure out who the problem is, it's been so long, and these poor kids have been, you know, in the middle of these long, drawn-out six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year divorces sometimes that the damage is done before it's really figured out. So your book would help the children in that the people who are involved in the divorce, whether it's the judges, the lawyers, etc., they have information so that they can be aware of this type of a personality and its impact on, obviously, the divorce and the family, and then they don't get seduced by that person. I mean, they need that information because lawyers know the legal stuff, and so do the judges, but not necessarily, like you're saying, the psychological. Right. Yeah. That's right. And I and so I kind of laid out the book like that, like the the first part of the book is really how to identify the problem. Um, the second part of the book is if you now realize that you are in a relationship with a narcissist and it's hurting you and your children, you know, what do you do? How do you make good decisions? Um, how do you find the right professionals to help you? Um, and then the third part of the book, which I think is the most important, is how do you, that other partner, heal from this devastating relationship and how do you help your wounded children? And then I, I, I end the book with uh, some ideas for court reform. Well, if we're talking about, and I think we are statistically, 50% of all marriages end in divorce, and 60% of second marriages end in divorce, you're talking about a, a huge population of children who are going to be affected by this, yes. these kinds of divorces, right? Yes. So where do we start? I mean, can you give us examples? Like, like an exa- I don't know if you can talk about, like, let's say, high celebrity profile kinds of cases. I mean, would you, can you label some of those? Um, or just examples that you've had in your own practice, you know, kind of put a face on what we're talking about? Um, I, I w- I'm not comfortable labeling anyone in the media or celebrity world, um, but... You know, what we're seeing in our practice and in the cases we're involved with and in the many, many interviews I did for this book are, you know, that narcissistic parent who it's just everything is about what works for them, whether it's the money, the division of property, the parenting time, the activities the kids can be involved in, it's... Everything is wrapped around that parent, and they see everything from their own perspective. And that's what the lack of, that's why that lack of empathy is such a cornerstone. Okay, you know, so they, for example, example, you've got mom and dad and two kids. And start from the very beginning when you first have a, the baby comes home from the hospital. Um, how does, can you rec, start to recognize that this is a narcissistic parent, or does it, Sort of, it, does it evolve as your family gets bigger, or, and they? Yeah, that's a great. That's a great question, because, and I talk about this in the book too. In the beginning of a relationship, the narcissist has does this amazing, charming, um, you know, pulls you into their sticky web <laughs> by their their charm, you know. And so oftentimes people are are just thrilled. I mean, they just think they they have the most fabulous relationship ever because the narcissist has the ability to pull this off. And oftentimes even family members and other people think, wow, you know, look at this fabulous person and how much attention they're giving our loved one. And But when something, you know, once you're in relationship with them, if you are not constantly feeding their narcissistic supply and orbiting around them, that's when the problems begin, and oftentimes it's after that very first stage of the relationship, you know, uh, the what I call la-la land, you know, when people first fall in love. <laughs> um, and, and your point is interesting because oftentimes that is when a child comes into the picture because then suddenly, you know, the attention of of the parent who wants to tune into the child, and and this is both genders. I talk about male and female narcissists. Um, 
Is it more prevalent among one or the other uh, sexes? You know, um, female or female, or narcissist, uh, parental narcissist. No, I don't think so. I I I think that there's sort of a general belief out there that um, narcissists are usually men. But you know, my first book was written about um, narcissistic mothers and the impact on their daughters. Um, and so I and we that has. I've had a ton of feedback about how many narcissistic mothers there are out there. So it can be either gender, um, but oftentimes then, let's say a baby comes into the family and the person, the parent who can tune into the child begins to tune into the child as should be. And then that narcissist, the other parent, the narcissist is not getting the attention they would normally get. And that's can sometimes be the start of the awakening or the problems. So that may trigger all of this behavior or exaggerate. The behavior becomes exaggerated. You know, I'm thinking of a situation which may be somewhat normal. Let's take it that, that the father is the narcissistic parent. Uh, you know, you have, when a mother gives birth, her seems to she seems to focus on the baby, uh, and then the father is jealous uh, of the time spent with the baby, um, and I guess in normal families, after a while, they're able to to work that out. But you're that's in that, right. yeah, and it, that's but right. that can be that can just be an adjustment that both parents have to make when when a child comes into the family. And but but as you just said, in normal families, that adjustment is made, and the parents work that out together, and they still maintain their connection with each other, and. Um, but if a narcissist begins to feel like they're losing that attention or they're losing what we call the narcissistic supply to them, um, or they feel abandoned in some way, then that can begin to trigger their bad behavior. And in that case, what would they do? What would, you, what would one look for? What kind of bad behavior, which wouldn't be quite normal, or it wouldn't, you know, or what are we talking about in terms of a time frame, in terms of a fairly, instead of normal, I like to functional family, but we, we can see that it's not going to be a functional family, it's dysfunctional. So what kind of behaviors would you, what do, what you as a therapist, what do you look for? Oh, there. I have a checklist in the book of 50 things that, you know, things like um, is your partner not accountable for their behavior? Um, is just, does your partner blame you for everything that goes wrong? Do they believe they're the one that's always right? Are they unable to tune into your feelings or the children's feelings? Um I'm just kind of jumping around on yeah, well, those, those, all 50, but, um, yeah, but those are they, good examples. You know, are they, um, one thing we hear often is the, uh, both the partner and the children begin to internalize the message of no matter what I try to do for you, it's never going to be good enough, it's never going to be right, um, they're not... You know, it, it, they, they tend to kind of get into this power and control thing like it has to be their way or the highway, you know. I mean, and kids, yeah. kids we know don't deal well with that, but neither do partners. <laughs> you know? well, it's exhausting. It becomes uh, just physically and emotionally, I would imagine, exhausting for the, the, part, the healthy, and I'm putting that yeah. in quotes, the healthy partner because you're trying to take care of, uh, let's say, a new baby, and then you've got this other parent who's really not parenting but demanding more attention than the than the baby. <laughs> yes. uh, There's yeah. a lot of neediness. Um, and it is exhausting for people and but but also I think it's not well understood. And so oftentimes people are just work and work and work to, you know, try to be the best parent they can be and the best partner they can be and until they realize that their own needs are not being met, and neither are their children's needs being met. You know, what I've noticed when I see couples like this, and, and after they've been together for many years and do have a family, uh, the person, the, the healthier one, uh, is, it gets worn out. 
It, yeah. I mean, I, I just think of the word worn out, appears so worn out from trying to juggle all of this and trying to please the other partner or the narcissistic parent, the children, uh, that they finally end up either going to a therapist and or getting a divorce yeah. or seeking a divorce, right? And oftentimes they're called codependent, the other partner, you know, like, or you're being too, too codependent. <laughs> but it, it, that sort of evolves in these relationships. You know, that's what that other partner almost, almost ends up having to do to keep the relationship together, you know, and, and then it becomes dangerous for them. Carol, is there any, do we create narcissists as parents, or is there a genetic component to it, or both? I don't think there's research clearly that says there's a genetic component, um, but uh, my understanding from all the research I've done and, and just working with and studying these families is that I think narcissism is caused by trauma in uh, that person's early years. When you say trauma, can we define what that is? Could the trauma be because the person themselves had a narcissistic parent, so yeah. that would that traumatize. Be it, yeah. that it can, the trauma, yeah, like in, you know, having a childhood where your needs aren't met or your, your parents, um, the, the kind of the mantra in the narcissistic family is the whole notion of love it becomes very distorted. I call it the legacy of distorted love. Love is kind of defined uh, from the narcissist viewpoint is uh, love is about what you can do for me or what I can do for you <laughs> rather than, you know, love is about I love you for who, for who you are, the person that you are, the traits and, and beautiful character that you are. And so oftentimes these people will come from families that, that you know, operated under the legacy of distorted love. So distorted love, I, you know, I hadn't really heard that term, but, uh, um, I, you know, as you're talking about distorted love, I'm thinking about, um, like, it, the love is, is, there's never any kind of unconditional love, like the unconditional love of a child. It's always based on something, as you said, I guess, so, you, you know. What based you... on, right. The, 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 um, the narcissistic parent is, their focus is on image, uh, how things look to the outside world instead of how their partner or their child feels. And it's all about reflecting well on them. And so the behavior, what you do, becomes more important than who you are, which you can imagine, you know, how that isn't healthy for anyone, particularly kids. Yeah. So what is that you, know, you talk about kids? Um, I, let's... Talk about the children. Um, how, how does it? That kind of parenting begin to manifest certain behaviors in the children after a while. I mean, we started talking about like a newborn baby, but let's say as the kids, you know, they're they're toddlers, they're preschool. When they get in school, do they start reflecting or exhibiting behaviors that come from this kind of distorted love, distorted parenting? They can, and uh, much of this depends on if the other parent is tuning into them and, you know, caring about their feelings. But just because someone is raised by narcissistic parents doesn't make them a narcissist. It's not going to turn them into a narcissist. But particularly if they have the other parent there, they have another significant figure in their life who is teaching them, you know, about love and and cherishing them for who they are. Um, usually what we see with kids that are dealing with this is they they can uh, start acting out and, and um, you know, being naughty, or they can, a lot of them just shut down. You know, they become very frightened because they're kind of walking on eggshells in their family. Yeah, but I'd like an example of that because I'm sort of picturing like, uh, you know, a five-year, well, maybe a little bit older, six, seven, eight years old, always trying to please that parent when they never can please the narcissistic parent. So always kind of, and, and then you get into a, a situation, it would seem to me, where the healthy parent or the other parent then gets frustrated and angry at the kid for trying to please the other parent. I mean, that's another scenario. Um, 
Maybe we can talk about that after the break. So we have to take a short break right now. But I'm talking to Dr. Carol McBride, psychologist and author of Will I Ever Be Free of You? How to Navigate a High-Conflict Divorce from a Narcissist and Heal Your Family. I'm Catherine Zocht, your social worker with a microphone. Uh, don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace to speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. It's time to take a new look at some of life's changing moments. It's time to listen to an expert who has been there and can provide insight through experience, studies, and enlightening guests. Tune in to Illuminating Now, Lindsay's Life Secrets. Host Lindsay Levinson takes a look at relationships, parenting, health and wellness, divorce, depression, sexuality, philanthropy, and mental health. You'll look at everything you know in a different way. Illuminating Now, Lindsay's Life Secrets, airs Wednesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. The world we live in has become a crazy place. Poverty is at an all-time high in the wealthiest nation on Earth. We keep calling on government to save us with new programs. And now, we have more people using food stamps than any time in our history. This problem continues to get worse. The answer to poverty is in our homes, churches, and communities, and through our children. Get the answers from The Mickey Ellison Show, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We're back now with Dr. Carol McBride, author of Will I Ever Be Free of You? How to Navigate a High-Conflict Divorce from a Narcissist and Heal Your Family. Uh, Carol, before we took the break, uh, we were obviously we were talking about family and the impact on children who have a, a parent who is a narcissist, a parental narcissist. Uh, before we get back into that, could you just tell us, um, I know we can buy your bookstore uh, on Amazon, bookstores everywhere, but uh, where can we contact you? And we'll mention it again at the end of the show, uh, website, uh, information about you and what you're doing in the book. Oh, we'd love to have you join us on our website at www.willieverbegoodenough.com. And we have a pretty active Facebook discussion at... Um, Facebook.com slash Dr. Carol McBride. Great. Okay. Oh, thank you. And we will, we'll, you know, at the, the end of uh, the show, at the end of the interview, we'll mention that again. Uh, so we were talking, you know, before we took the break, that children acting out, um, you know, what are the, the repercussions for having a narcissistic parent, always trying to please that narcissistic parent? Um, and then do they, I guess, do they also respond to the healthy parent in a negative way because they because the healthy parent is also trying to please the narcissistic parent in, you know, and, and then the child themselves perhaps is not you know don't get enough attention good healthy attention 
That can happen. Um, it, it can feel like the, the non-narcissistic partners constantly having to orbit the narcissist, and so then the needs of the children are left unmet. Um, but if that other parent is really tuned into the, the children, um, typically what happens is then that child um, really bonds to the non-narcissist and is shut down and fearful of the narcissistic parent and and so you know has to learn how to how to deal with that and how to become more assertive and um, how to kind of understand eventually as they get older that this other parent is not going to be able to meet their needs you know it's not a good situation so what do we do I mean you get to this point or what point do you usually see families or the non-narcissistic parent will come to you and say we need help, um, you know, uh, whether do they come to you while they're going through a divorce or beforehand and then you help them get through the divorce or, you know, at what stage do people or, or one of the, you know, the healthy parent you able to realize, hey, this is, you know, this is, this is scary stuff. This is not going to go away. Uh, these are really, really, uh, you know, these are issues that are destroying my family. Um, that depends. Uh, we... We see a lot of them when they're in the divorce process, but oftentimes uh, we will have the, the non-narcissistic spouse or the children um, coming into therapy with symptoms of anxiety and symptoms of depression and symptoms of eating disorders and, um, you know, acting out behaviors at school or tantrums or, you know, it'll, it'll begin to manifest somehow in symptoms. Um, that they don't really fully understand why that's happening and they're internalizing that I'm not good enough feeling and it must be me. It must be something wrong with me. Do you get involved with the schools? I mean, you've described a lot of things. Obviously, they're going to act behaviors that are going to manifest themselves at school, not just at home. And that's number, I guess that's the first part of my question. But the second part is, is how aware are teachers and counselors in the school systems, in your experience, with this kind of behavior as it relates to the uh, parental narcissist? You know, I think that's a. I, I, I'm really glad you asked that question because I I really believe in general out there this issue is not understood that well yet. So whether or not we're talking about the schools and the teachers or uh, even other therapists, uh, custody evaluators, family law attorneys, judges, it's it's not understood well yet that you know that narcissism isn't just some goofy person who's just boastful and arrogant and talks about themselves all the time and who cares. That's, you know, people, I believe we need more education out there about how, how debilitating and damaging this kind of behavior is to the people who are involved in relationships with them. So my answer to that, I guess that was a long-winded answer. <laughs> um, That's Okay. It's, uh, I, I think we need to do a lot of education about this, which is why, really why I wanted to write this book. Yeah. Well, you're doing the education. You wrote the book. You're, you know, you're in the media. And as you mentioned, I guess you said there's a lot of activity on Facebook in regard to this. So that's it sounds like in terms of social media, that's a good way to get the issue out and to discuss the problem, or at least it has been for you, it seems. Yes, and, and you know... The, I, I want to say this, that my first book, uh, Healing the Daughters of Narcissistic Mothers, um, when that came out and I was first writing about parental narcissism, you know, I wasn't even sure myself, like, how how prevalent this was going to be and how much of it was out there. And, you know, I was amazed to find out the impact of that that just went all over the world, you know, um, so this is this is a much larger and uh, debilitating problem than than people realize. Well, you say all over the world. Um, you sort of preempted my next question because I'm thinking: Is this just something that's sort of inherent in our narcissistic American society, which we do tend to be more in lay terms? I'm talking about, or do you see this in other countries around the world? And have you gotten responses in other? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. From all over the world, and 
In fact, um, Will I Ever Be Good Enough, my first book about narcissistic mothers, has been translated into seven foreign languages now, I think. Um, and, yes, we're hearing from people all over. It's, it's fascinating. And it's, it's, it's because um, there are people out there all over the world who have this disability, this lack of empathy. You know, this inability to tune in to other people. I wonder why we haven't addressed this sooner. This is 2015, and, you know, we have such an emphasis on psychology and pop psychology and real psychology and all of that, and yet we, and this is, you know, a huge problem as you defined it here and abroad, every, you know, around the world. Why do we... Have, why haven't we recognized it before? What do you think? I mean, do we repress it? We don't want to discuss it? It's, is there a yeah, stigma, a shame? What is it? That's, that's a fabulous question because I, I, I think that one of the reasons, and maybe the biggest reason, that it hasn't been addressed is because it, there's sort of a, a taboo, if you will, about um, speaking badly about your parents. I mean, you know, the old honor thy mother and thy father uh, from the Bible, and uh, particularly about mothers. You know, good girls don't hate their mothers. You don't speak badly about your mother. Um, and, And then I think another piece that's important is that everyone wants to feel like they came from a loving family and and kind of wants to stay in denial. And uh, many, many people in these families don't want to embrace this and address it because, you know, they, they, they don't want to face that. So, and, and my theory is we, we can't fix something that we can't, you know, really admit and em- embrace. Yeah. Well, I think that's the key. If we don't embrace it, we don't admit it, we don't define it, then right. they can't do anything about it. Well, do you think, you know, as you're talking about families, really don't, they're in denial. They, we all want to think, well, we have the great loving family and I have a great mom and a great dad, when in fact that may or may not be true. Maybe some of the media shows that are criticized, but, you know, things like Modern Family or some of the families now that they portray on television are kind of like opening up the doors to maybe all, you know, to there are different kinds of families and they don't necessarily work. And in, in, in even in some of those uh, uh, th- those television programs, you do see the, the parental narcissist. So kind of it's it like opening people's eyes or there's sort of a window into being able to take a look at this this narcissistic parent, that kind of behavior. Yeah, and there's something about even though, I mean, you may may agree with this as, as uh, another mental health professional, you know, we, we kind of don't like labeling um, in general. I mean, I, I would rather be more strength-oriented and not go the other route and label and do diagnoses. I mean, sometimes we just have to. But with this issue, it needed a label. Yeah. I mean, sometimes when watching, you know, things like you're just describing in movies or on TV, you, I want to, I want to jump in there and say this needs a commentary. Yeah, <laughs> you know? this needs someone explaining what this is. Yeah. I, I agree with you because I think you do need labels. I mean, you're t- that's, we need labels in mental health. It's what we do with the labels. I mean, like if you're going to treat someone for heart disease or you're going to treat them for lung cancer, you have to label it. If, otherwise, you can't give them the proper medication or the proper right. treatment. And that's it's the right. same. Yeah. And so I think maybe we get caught up in the old days when we label people and then we discarded them because they had some kind of a mental disorder. So it's more like, okay, we can label it, but now what do we do about it? And, and yeah. It, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I want to address the what do we do about it, if that's okay, because I, I really think that the hope and the healing and the good news is that the antithesis, if, if you think of the antithesis of narcissism, it's empathy. So that other parent and the rest of the loving family, um, if we can parent our children with empathetic parenting, where it's all about tuning into how that child feels, you know, that is the way that we can fight this, I think. 
and so, help really help kids. Well, there, so there is an answer. There is hope, and and um, yeah. as, as you say, um, well, in your book, you talk about a. You talk about a five-step long-term, and we have to use the word long-term because I also think that's probably one of the issues or the problems that we do have today. We want short-term answers, and we want them quick, and if we don't get them, we tend to discard them. So you outline a five-step long-term recovery model. you got to really work on it, um, starting out with acceptance and grief. Let's acceptance that this exists, that we have this problem, we have a parental narcissist, we have a, a dysfunctional family, uh, we have to accept it. We kind of, we've touched on that. But what about the grief? What does that mean? The grief process is, you know, I don't think you can grieve not having the right kind of parent until you've really accepted that this is the reality. So that's why acceptance comes first. But the grief part is, is really cleaning up the trauma you know, is allowing yourself to embrace those feelings that uh, I didn't have the parent that I needed and wanted and that these things happened and I have to work through the pain and the trauma and the loss, you know, that goes with that. And that's where a lot of, that, that's where the bulk of the therapeutic work comes from. And then once you do that or you're able to do that, and I, I imagine too that is, that's ongoing. I mean, it would seem to me because the, it, things, even though you may, you get to a certain peer, point where you you're healthy, you make better choices, good choices based on the parenting that you've had. But then stuff comes up because you, you know you have for whatever it is, you have your own children, or somebody gets sick, or and then all this stuff kind of resurfaces. So you kind of go over it, but not in the same way because hopefully one is is healthier and has accepted and and gone through some right. of the grief. Yeah. Right, and the more you know, the more we really embrace and clean up trauma. It's it doesn't mean that the issue completely goes away. I mean, I talk about it in my first book is is sort of like the scar on the tree trunk. You know, the scar is still there, but you know, with with our trauma recovery work and working the five step model, we're sealing that over. We're comforting it. We're making it better. We're dealing with it better, and so it the reaction to the unloving or neglectful or abusive parent is does not cause the same kind of post-traumatic stress collapses that it does before people do recovery. Yeah, example. I mean, and uh, I can think of examples in, in uh, clients that I've seen, you know, you've sort of worked through some of this stuff and then uh, uh, the client has a new baby, for instance, and the mother never comes to see the baby or it doesn't come right. till six months later or those kinds of things. Right. Um, what, you know, and they, but let's go to the next step because I think that's really that's a difficult one that you talk about in the five-step long-term recovery model, psychological separation. Um, what does that mean in this context? What it means is, you know, in normal kind of developmental psychology, you know, kids start to do individuation separation, you know, which is becoming their own person separate from their family. You know, they start it early. You know, when they're in pre-puberty, they work on it all through adolescence. They work on it through what we call the trying 20s <laughs> um, yes. until they finally are sort of developed into their own uh, whole sense of self. But children who grow up in narcissistic families don't get to do that because they're, they're either too engulfed or too neglected, um, which sound like two extremes of opposite ends, which they are, but they have the same impact. So they will, they don't get to really, they can't get out of that sticky narcissist web. And so as they do this work uh, in recovery, they are separating themselves psychologically from the dysfunctional family. So they're, they're able eventually to step out of that um, and look at it more objectively. Mm-hmm. Which know. is tough work. That takes, that is tough work yes. to do. Uh, and then it leads to the road, as you desc- as uh, you describe it, becoming your authentic self, which obviously is key to this whole, I think, um, yes. recovery. Yeah. Yes, because in when you're dealing with a narcissistic parent, you are not going to be able to be your authentic self. You you are going to be called to uh, conscript to the mold that they want you to be in, and so the child doesn't get to develop. 
that. And so then a part of this recovery is, okay, now I'm free of this. Now I get to work on me. And in the context of a divorce, which which this is, uh, dealing with your ex in recovery, how do you do that? I mean, divorces are very, very difficult with two healthy people. Right. And trying to deal with your ex in recovery with a, one who is a parental a narcissist, what do you do? How do you... Right. Yeah. And that, and that of course, is a, a, a long answer, but um, a couple things that are... I think very important. Um, one is to begin to recognize when you're being manipulated so that you can then learn how to set boundaries. Um, because the, the, the biggest way to disarm a narcissist is to set a boundary and keep it. Yeah. And oftentimes, you know, people who are involved in these families don't, they don't know how to set boundaries. The narcissist doesn't have boundaries. So, and then when you try to set boundaries with them, it, it's difficult. But a key there, I think, to dealing with the ex in recovery and also teaching the children how to deal with them is learning to be assertive and, and set boundaries and keep them. So in your practice, how long does this, we know we're talking about long-term recovery, but in your practice, and you're going through this with a family, how long does it take to actually, like, say, being in counseling, like the average, if one were to come to you for therapy or counseling, uh, what's, you know, what is the average time in therapy? Um, if someone is really invested in working the five-step model and, and having their kids, you know, really get to the other side of this, too, it's... It can range from one to two years of, you know, weekly or every other week work. And when you're talking about that, how, uh, different, obviously the age of the kids and all that one takes into consideration. Do you do this? Do you include the ex in the process? Do they, if they will, come to the sessions or, how, you know, real specifically, or you're dealing with let's say, a mother and children or the father and the children or, you know, or is it, does it vary? It varies. And, again, if you, if you think of a spectrum disorder, you might have a parent that isn't a full-blown narcissist, you know, that it is amenable to treatment, you know, that maybe you can do empath- empathic parenting coaching with them and teach them how they're not tuning into their child and, and do sessions with them with the child. So there, there can be some hope there if that person isn't a full-blown narcissist. If, you, if they are a full-blown narcissist, they don't come to therapy. They're not interested in therapy. But they will find the therapist to also be not good enough. <laughs> and, um, yeah, you're the bad guy. It's a 180. Yeah. You're the horrible. And yeah. probably they've gone on to next anyway, it would seem to me, you know, in most cases, on to the next. If their group. needs met in other ways, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I tell a story in my first book about a, a, a narcissistic father I had in my session who, who took out $100 bills and a cigarette lighter and started them on fire in my office and said, this is what I think of your therapy, Dr. McBride. <laughs> and I'm like, uh-oh. Okay. And, well, he's your perfect example. <laughs> I hope he didn't burn down the office. Yeah, that was my first thought, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so he's a good example of, of what you're dealing with. Or you're right, yeah, the true narcissist way, you know, the is not going to come in anyway because no. you're you're the and, devil you incarnate. Know, in along that line, in the divorce process, they the everyone who deals with them has the same. It's that same feeling, like you know, the, their divorce attorney won't be good enough. If the judge rules against them, the judge is not good enough. You know, they storm out of the courtroom or say they're going to get another judge. Like, they think they can just, you know, we don't like these shoes. We're taking them back. You know? Yeah. I mean, well, it's always so, everybody else's fault. It's, it's yeah, yeah, they're not always, accountable. Yeah. And I think another piece to that is with the, in my experience with the, with the narcissist is, well, it's, it's everybody else's fault, but at first, when the narcissist tries to engage or charm, let's the therapist or the judge or the lawyer, and they think that they are charming, then that's the most wonderful person in the world, and then they do a complete 180, and this person becomes the villain. I mean, that's one of, you know, if they say, if they, whatever they do that the narcissist perceives is against them. Right. 
Right. Yeah, that's kind of, and that that's where it can kind of um, move into some of that the borderline personality stuff. You know, where uh, one minute you're valued highly, and the next minute you're just a piece of dirt. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. But we only have a couple minutes left, and we've got, we, we could get into the fifth one briefly, ending the legacy of distorted love. What is it? You know, that's, that's the uh, fifth step in the long-term recovery yeah. model. And yeah. What, yeah. What, and that really is just about, okay, once we work through the trauma and the grief and we separate and we work on our authentic self and we can now deal with the, the ex or other narcissists, you know, setting boundaries, being assertive, then the, the fifth step is the one that you just kind of continue to work on for the rest of your life, you know, and um, I don't want to have narcissistic friends. I don't want to get into another relationship with a narcissist. I, I want to make sure I do empathic parenting with my children so that they learn how to tune into the emotional welfare of others. So it's the where we go from here, kind of changing this picture. Mm-hmm. Be aware. You have to always be aware of of who you are, what you're doing, and making better choices, as you say, based on that. Well, we have a minute left, so this has been great. I want to just mention it's willieverbegoodenough.com is the website? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. And book, you can buy it at Amazon bookstores everywhere, uh, Dr. Carol McBride, psychologist, author, uh, marriage and family therapist, uh, and she is the author of Will I Ever Be Free of You? How to Navigate a High-Conflict Divorce from a Narcissist and Heal Your Family. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning, Carol. Thank you, Catherine. I enjoyed it. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 